call it wherever you want. I'm going to call this a great example of hubris. This is what Joe Biden or his team tweeted out the other day. Iowa's over and there's still only one person who ever defeated Donald Trump. And then this 12 second clip, for those of you listening to this and not watching it, this is a 12 second clip, 12 seconds, less than 15 seconds, 12 seconds, two seconds more than you can count on your two hands. And there is a jump cut in the middle of it. He couldn't even do a 12 second clip in one take. You know, it's kind of funny. All these Republican candidates in the primary trying to beat Donald Trump. I'm still the only person to ever beat Donald Trump. And I'm looking forward to it again for the good of this country. Except uh, you didn't beat Donald Trump. They stole the election in your favor. And you told us this while you were still campaigning. It's such a key thing that you admitted to that I use it as the introduction to my show, Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. And just in case you forgot, Joe Biden, that you said it, let me officially start this show with the aforementioned or just mentioned introduction. We're in a situation where we have put together and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration before this. We have put together I think the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. I think we need to see it again. Can we see it again? Can you watch it again? It was kind of funny. All these Republican candidates in the primary trying to beat Donald Trump. I'm still the only person to ever beat Donald Trump. And I'm looking forward <laughs> to it again for the good of this country. So that jump cut, as we call it in the biz, where you can see they've sliced it and they zoom in, was obviously there for yeah. a reason. He screwed it up. He couldn't get through it. And they couldn't get a second take, I guess, with him in the original position. Or he couldn't get through even that short bit one time. So they had to use the... The up close from the second take. That's that's my belief also, on what happened. This is terrifying. Uh, it's terrifying that that fake man is the president of the United States of America. Welcome to the BCP podcast. I am James, BCP, Black Sort of Patriot. Big hug to all of y'all out there. Uh, what we're seeing here, and we have been seeing for a long time, of course, is this uh, tyranny. This tyranny that doesn't seem to have any kind of end to it. That's the frustrating part. Uh, but look, Joe Biden's a fake president. He's not fooling anybody. CNN entrance poll into Iowa reported the following. In the Republican caucuses, they were asked, do you think Biden legitimately won in 2020? Less than 30%, 28% said yes. 68% said no. An overwhelming majority know the insurrection was on November 3rd, 2020, not January 6, 2021. And the tyranny of the fake president continues. Let me remind you 
of what's going on with Hunter Biden as an introduction to our first report. Because we've done this investigation the right way, we're getting everything we wanted. We wanted Hunter Biden to come in and answer questions. Uh, we have a lot of questions, and now he's going to have to come in and sit down and, and answer specific questions about specific transactions, specific meetings. But he gets to do it on his terms. He's not doing it when he was supposed to do it in December. He's doing it February 28th. And you know those contempt of Congress charges that they were going to refer to the DOJ that they were voting on and meeting on? They're not going to go through with it. They're going to accept his terms of having a deposition later. That's right. He gets to escape any consequences for contempt of Congress. So the stonewalling is now over and the date has been set. So mark your calendar. Hunter Biden slated to sit down for a closed door deposition with two House panels on the 28th of February if he shows up. Right. I mean, that's that's what we thought last night. Right, Dana. Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's Friday. I'm Bill Hammer live here in New York. Hello. If he shows up, indeed. Meanwhile, what's happening to Trump people for contempt of Congress charges? Are they getting off like Hunter Biden? No, the DOJ wants to imprison them for a very long time. This is the latest with Trump advisor Peter Navarro. DOJ seeks prison terms for former Trump aide Peter Navarro. Axios reporting, former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro should be sentenced to six months in prison and fined 200 grand following his criminal conviction for contempt of Congress, the Department of Justice said yesterday. Driving the news. Defying a subpoena from the House January 6th Unselect Committee deserves severe punishment, DOJ prosecutors argued in a sentencing memo. I mean, literally, literally, we're watching Hunter Biden totally escape because the weak-ass Republicans with not a bone of conviction in their damn bodies letting Hunter Biden totally slide on, I believe, two committees that had subpoenaed him and one unselect committee, which wasn't even a reminder. It was an unselect committee because Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, said he wanted Jim Jordan, I can't remember the other person, on the committee. Nancy Pelosi said no, and then she put her own Republicans on. That's not how it's supposed to be. The whole thing's a sham. They threw out evidence. They didn't keep the evidence. They selected, I mean, the whole thing was just a a con job. Peter Navarro says no, and the DOJ says that he deserves severe punishment. Yet Hunter Biden, the GOP just lets him off. And the guy is a friggin' criminal. A freaking criminal. Or as they say here in Utah, totally makes me laugh. Flippin' criminal. I don't know if you guys heard that outside of Utah, but they say flip. It's a, it's a pretty funny thing. Crazy. Right in our face. Double standard. They don't care. They really don't care. There's no consequences. Nothing ever happens to them. These people are shameless anyway. The defendant chose allegiance to former President Donald Trump over the rule of law, the DOJ wrote. Navarro was the second high-ranking former Trump official to be convicted in a case related to alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election after Steve Bannon whose four-month prison sentence remains suspended pending the outcome of his appeal. Navarro's actions do not stem from a disrespect for the law, 
Do they stem from any belief that he is above the law, his lawyers wrote in their memo ahead of his scheduled 20, January 25 sentencing. Rather, Dr. Navarro acted because he originally believed he was duty-bound to assert executive privilege on former President Trump's behalf. There's no such even claims of privilege that Hunter Biden can make. He has no privileges except for uh, Democrat privilege, deep state family privilege. And the double standard continues right there in front of our faces. All right. Now, while we're on the topic of the DOJ, who heads the DOJ? Of course, that's the attorney general who has had the DOJ in, in the recent past. Well, that would be Bill Barr. And let's get into what Bill Barr's up to. Bill Barr, a man who does not think that President Trump should be the Republican nominee, has joined other former attorneys general and filed an amicus brief insisting that Trump constitutionally qualifies for the ballot. Former Attorney General filed amicus brief insisting Trump constitutionally qualified for ballot. Nick Gilbertson yesterday, Breitbart News. Three former U.S. Attorneys General, including Bill Barr, who does not support Donald Trump's campaign for the Republican nomination, insist that Trump is constitutionally qualified to be on the presidential ballot in a U.S. Supreme Court brief their lawyers filed yesterday. Along with Barr, former Republican Attorneys General Edwin Meese III, and Michael B. Uh, McCasey, as well as several law office uh, professors, comprised the amicus in the Trump versus Anderson brief. After the Colorado Supreme Court ruled in a 4-3 decision that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, colloquially known as the Insurrection Clause, bars Trump from the ballot, his legal team and the Republican Party of Colorado challenged the effort. The brief, filed by General Counsel Gene Scher, argues that the Colorado court's decision is a misrepresentation of the clause And if upheld, the ruling would create a precedent with ruinous consequences for our democratic republic. The argument at the center of the brief, of which law professor Stephen Calabresi and Gary Lawson and the group Citizens United are also amici amici curiae, is that the clause does not pertain to candidates for the presidency. And it's pretty clear because, I mean, I'm no constitutional expert, but let's use common sense here. It's very specific. You have to be a natural-born citizen. You have to be 35 years of age. Okay, they they made specific uh, requirements and criteria to be president of the United States. When they did the 14th Amendment and the, uh, the third section, they talked about officers. And in that verbiage, it doesn't say, it doesn't pertain to the president. Officers are people who are appointed or delegated. It goes through elected officials like people in Congress and in state legislative bodies. It goes specifically through them, uh, explains that they are also subject to this 14th Amendment, but it does not mention the president. So they specifically mentioned legislators who are elected officials and officers and others, but they do not specifically talk about the president of the United States. Therefore, it does not pertain to to the president, even if there was a case that he had led an insurrection, which President Trump did not. Not only was it not an insurrection, it was a protest. President Trump didn't even lead it. This is evident in Section 3's text, which omits the president instead 
specifying certain offices such as senator and representative. Now pay attention because this this is awesome. I mean, this pretty much seals the deal. Earlier versions of the proposed text included president and vice president, but later versions excluded those offices and instead disqualified presidential electors who would choose the occupants of the president and vice presidential offices. The amicus cites the historical record of the 14th Amendment, which was passed soon after the United States Civil War in 1868. So I think this is huge. The original text had president and vice president, the proposed text, but then they took it out, said no. I mean, the fact that they originally had it and then took it out means that they did not want to include president and vice president. They just had the electors in there. I mean, it it just seems like a slam dunk thing. Why did the Supreme Court just rule on this? I mean, are they so damn busy? I mean, this is literally probably the most important issue in front of the Supreme Court, and they have to wait several weeks. Government at every level is so damn inefficient. Historical records, moreover, reveal that the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment were not concerned that a Confederate leader could attain the presidency. Instead, the framers and ratifiers harbored worries that former Confederates might be elected to the House or Senate, which explains why those offices are enumerated in Section 3. Winning offices in the states of the former Confederacy was the only realistic risk, and Section 3 was tailored to address that concern. They didn't want these insurrectionists getting elected to the legislative bodies, either as a senator or a congressman or woman, but that wasn't the case back then, in South Carolina, in Georgia, Alabama, Florida. They didn't didn't want these Confederates now becoming senators and, and, and congressmen of those states or being uh, officers of the United States and undermine it from within. Because, of course, there were, there were still a lot of people voting in those southern states that still, you know, were of the mindset of the Confederacy. It's so clear-cut. It is so clear-cut. A blind man can see it. What is more, the language of the text lists a hierarchy ranking of public officials beginning with U.S. senators and U.S. representatives as the brief highlights and makes no explicit mention of their office of the presidency. The brief argues that other language included in the section was not understood historically to include the presidency. The text speaks to a hierarchy of the public offices in descending rank order and its reference to an officer of the United States low in that hierarchical list cannot include a president because an office under the United States and an officer of the United States did not include the presidency as those terms were historically understood. I mean, it's, it, but you know, everything is so backwards now. Like for instance, we've always known uh, ladies and gentlemen to mean female biological women with ovaries and gentlemen to mean males without a penis. And they can try to change the meaning of the words today of man and woman and gentleman and gentlewoman and cis this and trans that and pansexual and fluid gender and all this other BS. But historically, when you look at things, we can make an argument and it's fact that when they said ladies and gentlemen, they meant ovaries and penises. End of story. Full stop. No cap. Like the youngins say. The Amicus goes on to assert that even if the conclusion that he engaged in an insurrection were correct, 
President Trump cannot be excluded from any presidential election ballot on that basis. Now, under the second key argument, they note that Section 3 is not self-executing and therefore led to Congress eventually establishing a federal insurrection statute, which bars someone convicted of rebellion or insurrection from serving in any political office. But President Trump has never even been charged with violating Section 2383, much less convicted under it. And then the third part of this, I mean, think about this. This is, this is very strong. First part is it doesn't even apply to, to the president. Second, there is specific verbiage in that, that defines what an insurrection is. And President Trump has not been charged, not even charged, let alone not found guilty of insurrection. And then the third point, the amicus argues the court should resist any interpretation of Section 3 that empowers partisan public officials to unilaterally disqualify politicians from the opposing party. Notably, Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows has followed the Colorado Supreme Court's move and unilaterally ruled that Trump is ineligible for the Maine ballot, citing the insurrection clause. The brief proposes a hypothetical in which the partisan shoe is on the other foot. So, you know, basically, can you have a Republican then saying that a Democrat isn't able to be on the ballot? Of course you can't. That doesn't. That's the third thing they're arguing. But I think the first two are more germane to this whole entire thing. I think they're more vital. It doesn't apply to the president. And he's not even an insurrectionist as defined by the law and the Constitution. All right, let's go back to the amicus brief and the example that they give of the shoe being on the other foot. If the Colorado decision were correct, the Georgia Secretary of State, a Republican, could unilaterally disqualify President Biden, a Democrat, from that swing state's ballot one day before the ballot certification deadline, perhaps finding that some of the president's policies of Biden were lawless in such a manner as to constitute, in the secretary's view, an insurrection. Other Republican officials are threatening to do just that. Ultimately, the brief concludes that without a new statute to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment passed by the U.S. Congress, it bars no American from running for the presidency. And then they quote the full text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which I think is a good conclusion. Maybe we should have led with that. So here we go. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of the president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So you can see here they go from senator and representative in Congress down to electors of president and vice president and then hold any office, civil or or, or military under the United States or under any state. So then they go federal, then they go state, and then they go member of Congress or uh, and then down to state legislatures. They go all the way down in a hierarchical way. So president would have been above senator or representative in Congress or right after that. But no, what they put is elector of president or vice president. So it's pretty clear cut. Pretty clear cut. 
Now, another question that's being asked is, okay, can Nikki Haley even be president of the United States? Or could she even be vice president if President Trump were to, and I highly doubt he would, tap her to be his running mate? Let's look at that now. No, the Constitution does not allow children born of non-citizens to become the president of the United States. Paul Ingracia, uh, this is an article today in the Gateway Pundit. It's actually based on uh, Paul's substack. So let, let's, get, let's get into the details uh, of this. Uh, let me just give you the important details, the bullet points. So the first thing is her parents, okay? The, um, here it goes. Nikki Haley was born Nemarata Randawa in Bamberg, South Carolina in 1972. But at the time of her birth, neither one of her parents were American citizens. As recently unearthed by investigative journalist Laura Loomer, both Haley's parents were Indian immigrants who did not become U.S. citizens until after her birth in 1972. Her father, Ajit Randhawa, became a naturalized U.S. citizen six years later in 1978. Haley's office said her mother, Raj Randhawa, Randhawa did become a U.S. citizen until 2003, a year before Haley won a seat in the South Carolina House. So, her parents were not citizens. Okay, but were they at least residents while they were here? Well, we don't know. And they won't say. So, I'm thinking they weren't. Going back to this great substack, Loomer reports further states her inability to confirm whether Haley's parents actually ever went through the naturalization process to even receive citizenship. This on its own is quite worrying. But even if one or both of Haley's parents ultimately did become naturalized citizens subsequent to Haley's birth, Haley has never demonstrated proof that her parents were lawful residents at the time she was born. So all this time has passed. She served as U.S. ambassador. She served as governor. She served in the uh, House in, in, in the South Carolina a state legislature, and she's never even provided proof that her parents were here legally when she was born. Essentially, she's an anchor baby. And anchor babies are not eligible to be presidents of the United States because they are not natural born. She's not a natural born citizen. Anchor babies are not natural born citizens. Let's get into that. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution requires that in order to meet the high constitutional threshold for eligibility, the qualifier's parents must have both been citizens at the time of his or her birth. Citizenship, American citizenship, is a privilege, not a right. Now, look, it's been long upheld that you can uh, anchor babies are citizens. But we're looking specifically not just at American citizenship in general, but specifically citizenship eligibility to be president of the United States. And that's where we have to go back and look at the historical meaning of these words. The qualifier's parents having to be both uh, have been citizens at the time of his or her birth was so long a well understood by our founding fathers that it became 
simple common sense, not something they contemplated would ever need to be spelled out in painstaking detail. All that said, however, the relevant question is one of presidential eligibility, not birthright citizenship, and that term's constitutional relationship to natural-born citizenship. In short, citizenship and the question of birthright, although an important issue on its own, especially today with an unprecedented illegal alien crisis, is an entirely separate question from presidential eligibility, which is the rightful domain of Article 2, Section 1 of the United States Constitution, not the 14th Amendment. And it says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Okay, first, this amendment deals with the basic privileges and immunities of American citizenship and specifically not the citizenship status of the approximately 4 million slaves freed because of the Union's victory of the Confederacy in the Civil War. The architects of this amendment were apparently not contemplating presidential eligibility, the domain of Article 2, and notably the only such article in the entire Constitution where the term natural-born citizenship arises. Those who otherwise like to conflate the meaning of the 14th Amendment with questions of presidential eligibility cite the landmark Supreme Court decision, United States versus Juan Kim Ark. And this has to do with a uh, man whose parents were lawful residents. Uh, they were Chinese. He left to travel, came back. They wouldn't let him in. But then it was upheld that he was a citizen because his parents were lawful residents. The court found that Wong Kim Ark, born of lawfully residing parents, could thus be conferred with the basic privileges and immunities of citizenship. And that wasn't even a question of eligibility for president. That was just the definition they had give given for him to have the basic privileges and immunities of citizenship. And guess what? Nikki Haley does not meet that threshold. But there's more. Once again, let's go. Uh, and this article, this substack is is really, really great. I hope I don't forget to put the link in the description uh, of this episode so, so you can read it. But, uh, but what, what, what I really want to concentrate on is the historical definition of these, uh, of these terms and how they've been upheld through other decisions by the courts. Natural-born citizens are those born in the country of parents who are citizens. This phrase is supported by legislation passed in the years shortly after the Constitution was adopted, notably... The Naturalization Act of 1790, passed by the First Congress, uses the term natural-born citizens in the same exact way. The children of citizens of the United States that may be uh, born beyond sea or out of the limits of the United States shall be considered as natural-born citizens, provided that the right of the citizenship shall not descend to persons whose fathers have never been residents in the United States. Hence, the 1790 Naturalization Act, passed just three years after the Constitution was enacted, lends strong support that the framers of the Constitution understand natural born citizenship to mean exactly as had been conceived, namely only be granted to persons born of American citizen parents. So why does Wong Kim Ark not apply to questions of presidential eligibility? Those who insist that Nikki Haley is eligible to become president of the United States must overcome at least two serious hurdles. 
The first is one that the Haley campaign, since her becoming a state legislator years ago, have still failed to address. And that's the following. First, the threshold issue. They must prove that within the letter and spirit of Juan Kim Ark, that both of Haley's parents were lawful residents at the time of her birth on U.S. soil in 72. To date, she has never even met that most essential benchmark. And then the second is a little bit more complicated, but it has to do with the key phrase, subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And it's important uh, because implicit in that phrase is the understanding the United States has complete and exclusive jurisdiction over the party. This goes to fundamental questions of social contract theory. The Declaration of Independence spells out that rights are secured by governments instituted among men, which derive their powers from the consent of the governed. Thus, under the 14th Amendment, it is doubtful whether an individual, even one born on U.S. soil to non-citizen parents, qualifies as a natural-born citizen, let alone a natural-born citizen, as that term applies to questions of presidential eligibility under Article 2. To the extent that Wong Kim Ark muddles the waters on this fundamental or foundational question of citizenship, it is incumbent upon the courts to swiftly intervene to resolve them. Regardless, the idea that Nikki Haley automatically qualifies as a natural born citizen, let alone is eligible to run for president under the 14th Amendment to the extent that presidential eligibility and the original and true understanding of natural born citizens have anything to do with the 14th Amendment at all is far from being determined. Now, this is the second hurdle. Establishing that her citizenship status, whether a child of lawfully residing immigrant non-citizens or possibly illegal, illegally residing non-citizens, falls under the gambit of Article 2, Section 1's original meaning of the phrase, natural born citizen. So as we looked at already, uh, the corroborated via the 1790 Naturalization Act, the universally understood meaning of the phrase natural-born citizens at the time of the Constitution was meant born of parents who are citizens. So even if you go with Wong Kim Ark, that would mean regular citizenship, but the Constitution says that to be a president, you must be a natural-born citizen, which means you must be born of parents who are citizens. So there is... In, uh, therein lies the argument of why Nikki Haley is not eligible to be president or vice president of the United States. And we also looked at why President Trump is not eligible to be taken off of the ballot in any state due to the Insurrection Act because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply to the president. So I hope this was an informative and thought-provoking look at Nikki Haley's eligibility and President Trump's amicus brief or the amicus brief filed on behalf of President Trump by former attorneys general. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for your support. Until the next one, ciao, goodbye, God bless. We're in a situation where we have put together and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud 
organization in the history of American politics.